For anyone who pays attention to the medical field, physician-assisted suicide is nothing new. Five states have currently legalized it, and multiple more are debating the issue right now. Physician assistance in death is exactly what it sounds like. Doctors who are caring for terminal patients in specific states have the ability to prescribe medication upon patient request that will end the patient's life. This issue obviously brings a very hard topic to the table, with each side carrying their own very strong feelings. In this episode, I'm going to focus on two accounts, one being a doctor's opinion on the issue, and the other a personal account from a registered nurse. Beginning with the doctor, um, Dr. Henry is an ER doctor and also a medical director for American Star Hospice. Um, Me and Dr. Henry had an amazing conversation from which I found this one response intriguing to the question, do you believe physicians should hold the power to assist in death? She responded, no, but I do believe it is their responsibility to assist in death. We, if we can't cure illness, we shouldn't, we shouldn't abandon our patients or their needs. Now, when I heard that response, it kind of gave me a new way to look at the whole physician assistance in death. Um, this is that the, it's actually the physician's responsibility. As they're caring for that patient, it's not a power that they hold. It is a responsibility to the patient and the patient's needs. Next, I had the opportunity to interview Elizabeth Darden, who shared a personal story of her family member's death. While this isn't the physician assistance that states have begun to legalize, it is important to understand what is currently in practice right now and use that to determine future advancements on this issue. All right, so my name is Elizabeth Darden, and I am a uh, RNBSN which is a registered nurse with a bachelor bachelor's degree. Um, and I've done a lot of different kinds of nursing, um, mainly uh, critical care, emergency room, um, but my longest stint was critical care, ICU. Awesome. All right, so we're just gonna jump right into the questions. Um, so who was it in your life that received physician assistance in death? So, of course, any question I'm gonna answer is gonna be from a medical professional's standpoint um and in my mind be it right or not just my opinion um there's a big difference in what i define as physician assisted death aka i call it kevorkian i think we always will um style death but and then also just being accepting of imminent death okay so as a registered nurse who like i said worked in the critical care unit I worked with a lot of patients um, that weren't my family members at the end of their life, Um, whether it be um, I had lots of heart attack victims who we weren't able to save. Those are not typically, obviously, any kind of assisted death um, or helped along or whatever you want to call it. Um, But I also worked with a lot of, you know, stroke victims, end-of-life cancer patients, end-of-life end-stage renal disease, end-stage liver failure. Um, there's all kinds of different things that came through the ICU with me um, throughout my approximately a little less than 10 years, so almost a decade of, of ICU nursing. Um, I did also have uh, my grandmother, so a personal relationship, who was uh, end-stage pancreatic cancer, 
Um, if you have any kind of medical knowledge at all, you know that pancreatic cancer is not very survivable. Um, she did go through chemos. She did go through radiations. Um, and it was just too late. By the time we caught it, it was already stage four. So um, towards the end of her life, um, meaning the last few hours slash days, she was suffering, um, moaning, unconscious, you know, that was not a viable life anymore at that point. Um, and we, as a family decided to make sure she stayed comfortable. Um, and so to me, if you want to define physician assisted suicide, uh, excuse me, it is a suicide. (laughs) Um, I would attribute that to me meaning more like, okay, I'm 38 years old. If I got diagnosed with colorectal cancer, stage four, it's in my bones, spine, you name it. And I decide as a 38 year old mother of two, who is sitting here talking to you on a daily basis, still functioning in society, I'm going to fly to Oregon and take some pills. It's a hundred percent different to me than what we did for my grandmother and what I did for patients as an ICU nurse. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that was too much, but I mean, like I said, I've been around it a lot. End of life care, um, is completely different to me uh, by definition than physician assisted death. Cool. Okay. So you mentioned, um, your grandma's state as she was like declining. So can you just kind of elaborate on like her quality of life and in like what ways it kind of like degraded? Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, when she was first diagnosed, um, with the pancreatic cancer, um, and, and if you don't know this, I'll give you a little bit of history or medical knowledge, pancreatic cancer, they call it the silent killer. Um, that's also a nickname used for ovarian cancers, things like that, um, who kill young, it takes over and kills young people as well. But pancreatic cancer is a silent, silent killer. Um, and mainly you don't even know you have it until you're jaundiced. And by the time you're jaundiced, it's too late. So it was Um, a very like abrupt. Absolutely. So we found out she had cancer, um, and within a year she was gone. And so, and that's with the chemos, with the radiations, um, another kind of just bad luck, I guess you could call it is she actually qualified, um, with the radiation, it shrunk her tumor enough that she qualified to have a very radical surgery. Um, it's called a Whipple procedure where they pretty much reroute your, your whole, your, your guts, um, mainly. So (laughs) kind of gives you a different pathway to kind of digest food and things like that, but it bypasses that pancreas, um, and a lot of its functionality. Um, but knowing what I do know about the Whipple procedure, it's an extremely difficult procedure to recover from. Um, we actually were, went down to, um, a specialty hospital down in Houston and they said, you know what? Um, we really hate to break this news to you because we really think you would benefit from the surgery if you weren't 83 years old. So because of her age, they didn't think she would ever recover and that the end of her life would be more miserable than it would be if she were to just die from pancreatic cancer. So we opted not to do the surgery and not to do that radical procedure where she would have extreme pain and like I said, um, functionality and and quality of life would have been, um, non-existent also, um, if we had, if she had made it through the surgery. Um, and that was a big if. So, um, as far as her quality of life right towards the end, um, I would put that at a big fat goose egg. I mean, those last few days, like I spoke about a while ago where she was unconscious, except for the moaning and, um, shallow breathing, um, which that lasted for two and a half, almost three days. Um, that was a zero quality of life. And so that's why I have zero qualms 
or, um, uh, ne- you know, bad feelings toward helping her stay comfortable. Um, morphine does um, slow respirations. It does not stop the heart. So to me, that's not killing them. It's helping them stay comfortable. And does it depress the respiratory rate? Sure. But they're going to, I mean, like I said, at that point, life is inevitable or death is inevitable. Excuse me. Um, quality of life is zero. And so you're just helping them be comfortable as they pass so that it's not quite as, um, and as I said, I've experienced a lot of different kinds of death in my, in my career of nursing. Um, it's not always real pretty. It's not always real fun. Um, (laughs) no death is, I suppose, but, um, there, it's, it's not, um, I don't know how to say there's a comfortable way to die and there's a non-comfortable way to die. And I'm absolutely, as a nurse, comfortable in my heart and my mind helping people stay comfortable because I took an oath to, to do that, to care for my patients, body, mind, and soul. And so I think that's part of it. Awesome. Okay. Um, in short, can you explain how the conversation went? Like when, at one point, did you start the conversation about, um, her end of life and um, how it affected you and then how it affected the rest of your family from your perspective. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of through that last year, you know, like I said, she was diagnosed with and within that year she was gone. Um, she was very clear on what she wanted and her wishes were to not suffer, to not be in pain. Um, she wanted to fall asleep. Um, like every, I think elderly person, um, hopes for you fall asleep and don't wake up, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and, and to have that is a blessing, honestly. Um, and so, you know, when we got to that point where she was no longer able to wake up and talk to us and no longer able to tell us what she needed, she just moaned and groaned. Of course, at that point, as a family, we start talking about, gosh, you know, I wish there was something we could do. And this part is the worst, you know, this part is horrible to just watch her and suffer, you know, and those comments start coming up. Um, with multiple families, not just mine, but those are the kind of same questions that happened frequently with even the patients that I took care of in their end of life. Um, and so, you know, I think as a, um, compassionate caregiver, a compassionate medical team, um, those questions are addressed by the not recommendation perhaps, or maybe that's the wrong word, but maybe the suggestion that if the family wants we could give them some more pain meds to make sure they're not hurting. Um, whether the family knows that that is going to um, speed the end up, it's not always evident, but the family is usually pretty keen um, and always wants their family to be more comfortable. So that's usually an option they always take um, to make sure that they're doing what they can to honor their family members' wishes of not suffering. So, and that's exactly what we did. You know, my, my mother and uncles, um, would have wanted, I mean, wanted, um, their mother to not suffer in the end of her life, you know? So, um, we started talking about it. I have me and another, um, cousin of mine is a medical professional as well. And so we're all pretty knowledgeable about it and we knew exactly what was going on and we were still okay with that. You know, we were still okay with decreasing her respiratory drive and those kinds of things. As long as she didn't seem to be in pain, we were okay with that. I'm actually very thankful for that. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you. You're bet. I'm I'm glad to help. (laughs)